Hi, I'm Dan Primack, and welcome to Axios Recap. Today is Tuesday, February 16th. Bitcoin is up above 50,000, power remains down in big parts of Texas, and we're focused on the cyber weapons arms race. Last year, the U.S. government discovered it was the victim of the largest ever cybersecurity breach in its history, whereby Russian hackers allegedly used a backdoor in the software of a vendor called SolarWinds to access all sorts of sensitive information. Subsequently, there have been allegations that Chinese hackers also exploited a flaw in the SolarWinds software, just exacerbating a national security emergency whose depth continues to be investigated. What is known, though, is that the SolarWinds hack is more about escalation than innovation. Cyber espionage, it's not new, and America over the years has been as much the actor as the acted upon. Moreover, many of the hackers involved aren't government employees or on government payrolls. They're independent contractors who sell to governments, effectively creating a global black market for ways to access everything from your email account to your city's power grid. That's the subject matter explored by Nicole Perlroth, a cybersecurity reporter for the New York Times, in her new book titled, This is How They Tell Me the World Ends. And we are pleased today to be joined by Nicole. So Nicole, let's start here. I called you a cybersecurity reporter, but from reading your book, I think that would get me some eye rolls from hackers. What should I really say you cover? I say cybersecurity, but everyone else says infosec, that I'm an infosec reporter at the New York Times. But these days it's more about nation-state espionage. So I added digital espionage to my title. Oh, I like that. Digital espionage. All right. So your book obviously goes deep into geopolitics, et cetera, but really focuses kind of on this underground market for what's known as zero-day threats. What is a zero-day threat? So a zero-day is just a hole or a bug in your software. So let's just use the easiest example. I'm a hacker. I find a problem with your iPhone iOS software. I develop code that can exploit that to read your text messages or turn on your camera when you're not looking or just record your voice. I can sell that to governments. And these days, the going rate for a way to remotely access Dan Primax iPhone is $2.5 million. Or there are now some Emirati Saudi dealers that will pay me as much as $3 million. And so I focused on zero days and zero day exploits in the government market for them because one, governments are not regulators in the space. They are the customers. And two, this was all okay three decades ago when we were using different software than the Chinese, than the Russians. If we found a zero day in Huawei software, we didn't really need to tell Huawei about it because not that many Americans used Huawei. But these days, we're all using the same technology. We're all using iPhones and Androids and and Windows, whether we know it or not. To go back a couple decades, am I correct in saying that the history of those who were kind of searching for these zero-day exploits originally was kind of hackers who were hobbyists to a certain extent, but that the big tech companies who were, you know, the Microsofts, the Oracles, et cetera, who were creating the software viewed them as, as basically malicious criminals? Yeah. And I really wanted to go back and explore that history Because hacker has such a bad connotation to it these days, we just equate it with cyber criminals. But really, I learned these were just people who, out of the goodness of their hearts and out of their own curiosity, um, were just tinkers. And they were finding a ton of bugs, particularly in Microsoft software back in the day, and also Sun Microsystems and HP. And those who really wanted to do the right thing were just getting beaten over the head by it. 
They either weren't getting callbacks from the companies. If they did get a callback, it was often from a general counsel or an attorney saying, stop poking around our software or we'll sue you. So hackers started just trading this information with one another on these hacker forums like BugTrack and Full Disclosure back in the day. You know, as far as they knew, they were just trading it as a hobby or for the street cred. But what I learned was these were taking on serious value in an underground marketplace and governments were willing to pay as much as $150,000 in those days for a single zero day in software that they were trying to exploit for espionage. Governments, obviously, including our government, employ lots of hackers as full-time jobs, whether it be in NSA or other parts of the government. Are you able to give me a sense of how much of the zero-day marketplace, if not marketplace, zero-day exploits are uncovered by actual people who are on government payroll, as opposed to those who are essentially freelancers who the government you know, pays for the exploit? Yeah. I mean, I was never able to get down to granular numbers, but from all the interviews I did, what I learned was in those early days in the 90s, the NSA really employed the best hackers in the nation. So they didn't need much outside help. What happened was during the 1990s embassy bombings and then later 9-11, it was other intelligence agencies like the CIA and even agencies I had never heard of, like the Missile Defense Agency, who knew that zero-day exploits could net the best intelligence. And if you got the best intelligence, that you got bigger budgets and it was a win for your agency. So those agencies that did not have the talent of, say, the NSA, learned that they could acquire zero-day exploits and hackers trade graph through this underground market. So really, in the beginning, it was a lot of um, brokers that were doing business with these other intelligence agencies, not just the NSA. But then we know from the Snowden documents that starting around 2013, the NSA added a line item to their budget, which was $25 million, nothing big but just specifically to pay outside hackers for zero-day exploits. And you know, people have run the numbers on that, and it's really hard to figure out what's what, because one of these zero-day exploits could access millions of systems, one could access you know, one, one terrorist somewhere. But I've seen estimates that that could get you about 600 zero days a year. It's interesting also because on the corporate side of things, you know, we, we talked about how at the beginning, you know, Microsoft was very upset about these people, but almost every big tech or even small tech company now has bug bounty programs where they do something similar for other reasons, obviously. At this point, you know, fast forwarding, you talk about this as a marketplace. Is it basically a highest bidder marketplace? Are people kind of aligned with certain governments or is it really whoever will pay me the most? That's where it goes. It's a little bit of both. So I discovered that there are these tiny boutique contractors none of us had ever heard of, like Vulnerability Research Labs, which has offices in Virginia and Maryland. And in talking to former VRL employees, I learned that they really will only sell these zero-day exploits. And also, they really develop them into these click-and-shoot espionage tools. They'll only sell them to the United States and Five Eyes, Five Eyes being the five English-speaking nations that form our closest intelligence partnership like Canada and the UK. But increasingly, there were these other boutique contractors who would sell to other governments and would train other governments in finding their own zero-day exploits. And I wanted to know where that part of the market was going. And so I actually went down to Argentina, where they have a really healthy hacking culture because of export restrictions. They don't have access to the same technology or even iPhone apps. They didn't have Amazon Prime when I was there a couple of years ago. And so to access all these cool toys that we all take for granted, they really have to hack into these systems to get them. And they have a really strong science and math technology education. And so 
there's naturally this sort of culture of hacking down there. And when I met with those hackers and I asked them, will you only sell to quote unquote good Western governments? They stopped me and they were like, Nicole, we don't think of the United States as a good Western government. The last time we checked, the country that bombed another country into oblivion wasn't Iran or China. It was the United States. So we'll just sell to whoever comes here with the biggest bag of cash. You know, your book, you finished it. It got or not probably it just came out recently, but you finished the draft and the manuscript center before the solar winds hacked. In fact, I just checked in the index. Solar winds doesn't appear. What does that teach us? And, and I mean, does it really teach us or kind of codify this idea? We don't have the smartest hackers in the room necessarily anymore. Yeah, I wish that I could have gotten solar winds into the afterward. I'll probably have to do a new afterward now. But the way I see the book is really the big prelude to the solar winds attack. I mean, I talk a lot about these operations that the NSA was doing on Huawei, for example, where we found that we could hack into Huawei. Originally, we were doing it to search for Chinese backdoors. But then we realized, well, Sudan and Syria and North Korea all use Huawei software. And if we can manipulate the code, then we'll get an early alert system into what some of our adversaries have planned. But, you know, we were pulling off these attacks for a long time. So solar winds, you know, we were all focused on the election and the Russian threat to the election. It turns out Russia was focused on getting into our federal IT networks and they were doing it in the same way that we uh, were hacking into our enemies through Huawei. They hacked solar winds and then they used it as a conduit to get into the State Department, Justice, Commerce, Treasury, the Energy Labs, um, the Department of Homeland Security. And so we're really caught in an interesting predicament right now, which is how do you, A, respond to an attack that you yourself have pulled off for decades? And two, how do you really respond to an attack when you don't know how deep into your systems your adversary is? And the group that we think is suspected of being behind this attack is a unit of the SVR. We know them because they hacked into the White House and the State Department back in 2014, 2015. And when I talked to people who were involved in that remediation effort, they described it as hand-to-hand digital combat. At one point, the hackers even took over uh, investigators' tools and manipulated it so it would not detect Russia's backdoor. So that's who we're dealing with right now, is someone who's a highly sophisticated enemy that was in our system for nine months or longer, and we don't know how many backdoors or other applications they compromised, and it, and it could be a while before we do. This isn't necessarily specifically in response to solar wind, the SolarWinds hack per se, but if you were President Biden and you were going to take one action vis-a-vis cybersecurity or InfoSec, what would that action be? Okay, that's a hard one. I think that I would come up with a better deterrence strategy. Deterrence has not worked. We have tried sanctions. We have tried indictments. You know, China and Russia don't extradite uh, members of their military or intelligence <laughs> units. We only get them actually when they uh, take a vacation to the Maldives and then we extradite them from there. Um, we have tried cyber attacks of our own, but what that has done, particularly in the case of Russia, My colleague David Sanger and I broke that we were hacking into the Russian grid and making a show of it is we've essentially enshrined the grid as a legitimate target for nation state attacks. So I don't know what the answers are, but I think that some of the most interesting conversations around cybersecurity in this early administration are going to be about forming a more coherent deterrent strategy. And the good news is that the very least in his first phone call with Putin, Biden brought up solar winds. And that was just not the case during the Trump administration. But it does sound like from what you're saying, that you know, you talk about the grid now being viewed as a legitimate target, that you think 
this kind of broad issue, this kind of cyber weapons issue is going to get worse before it gets better. Yes. Each attack we see is a slightly deadlier version of the last. You know, this is not getting better. And when you think about the fact that we're just on the cutting edge of virtualization and AI, you know, we're headed to a place where we're not just talking about the Internet of Things, we're talking about the Internet of Smart Things and things that can be easily manipulated by hackers. So, you know, the second thing I would do in this Biden administration is take a serious look at our critical infrastructure and exact serious carrots, incentives for companies, whether through tax credits or other means, to incentivize them to have strong security in place and also have some sticks, you know, penalties for companies that use old outdated software, or aren't patching their systems or are using manufacturers default passwords and making it really easy for the adversary to break in. And I think we've tried that for years. And each time lobbyists have been able to water down these bills and argue that they were too burdensome for the companies that operate the grid and other critical infrastructure. But I think we are at a point now where the cost of doing nothing is much higher than the cost of doing something. Nicole Perlroth, the name of the book is This Is How They Tell Me The World Ends, and you can get it at bookstores or Amazon or anywhere else. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Dan. Welcome back. What we're watching for is tomorrow's House hearing over the recent stock saga involving GameStop, Reddit, and Robinhood. Three things to know. First, those asked to testify include the CEOs of Robinhood and Reddit and the heads of hedge fund managers Melvin Capital and Citadel. Oh, and we'll also hear from Keith Gill, the trader alternatively known as Roaring Kitty or Deep Effing Value, depending on the social media site he's on, and clearly the most colorful witness of the bunch. Two, expect Congress to try to sort out if there was some sort of market manipulation or if this was really just a case of above-board volatility. Three, don't expect any new legislation to arise from whatever we learn. Now, to be sure, there is some talk of doing things like reduce the time it takes to settle trades or maybe even requiring some more disclosure of major stock shorts. But all that would likely come from the SEC, not from Congress. By the way, one person we will not see at the hearing tomorrow is Stacey Cunningham, president of the New York Stock Exchange. Here's what she told me on this past Sunday night's episode of Axios on HBO. Have you or anyone else from New York Stock Exchange been asked to testify in either the House or the Senate? I have not. You have not. Do you want to? This is not really so much a New York Stock Exchange issue. We we monitor the activity and we want to make sure markets You're the marketplace are... where everything was happening. I mean, you're 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 in the middle of it all, right? Yeah, I mean, what, what's really important to recognize here is is the the bigger picture what's going on, right? There are retail investors that are getting into the market and they're really focused on what is, you know, what opportunities do they feel like they're missing out on? Are the markets made for them or not? And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven. Have a great Fat Tuesday, and we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.